0: I want to thank Jed for uh, giving us a feast in God's love this morning in the songs that he picked and the words that he chose. Because, yes, we are transitioning in Ephesians chapter 5 to uh, look at... Um, maybe the bigger picture, so to speak, of what does this look like? It's this bridge we've been talking about from Ephesians 3 to 5 of Ephesians 4 that we're going from the infinite where God is is one, God is everything. The Spirit is involved, Christ is involved, God the Father is involved. He's in all and through all and with all, okay? And yet, how do we experience that on a day-to-day basis? Because that's what Paul prayed in Ephesians chapter 3, that we would know what is the breadth and length and depth and height of God's love. How do you know God loves you? How can you live in that? And the key as you walk through that was to realize the grace that we've been given and to, as we grow up in grace, the, the way that we experience that on a day-to-day basis is that we truth or that we speak the truth in love, that we're, we're living out of truth and we're speaking out of truth in the love of God so that we experience that together, living that out, and as we do that, we build up the body. The body grows, and it's, it, it's blessed, and it's encouraged. And therefore, he's saying here, as we get in Ephesians chapter 5, that it's not just a series of commands. Christianity is just not just a series of check boxes. Like, okay, I learned how to do this. Check. I'm practicing this. Check. I'm, I'm good over here. Check. But it's a lifestyle. He's going to say three walks in Ephesians chapter 5. Walk in love, walk in light, and walk in wisdom develop this lifestyle of being a Christian and so that you can live out the truths that you know. Now he's saying that, it's interesting in Ephesians chapter 5, when he says walk in love, he doesn't spend a lot of time telling us what it means to walk in love. And he says walk in light, and then he doesn't spend a lot of time telling us what what it means to walk in light. He tells us what it doesn't mean, in both cases, much more. And then he says, "Walk in wisdom," and he spends most of the time there telling positively what does it mean to walk in wisdom, where you're 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 rejoicing in the Spirit and you're walking in the Spirit and you're letting the Spirit guide you and you're submitting to another. So, and then he gets into the positives, like so you like, look, like what does walking in love look like? You have to go really to walk in wisdom. But then really he gets into walking in love looks like what husbands do to wives and what wives do to husbands and what children do to parents and what parents do to children. And, and he's, he gives a lot more positive content as to what it means to walk in love in those areas. But he's first of all stepping in and saying, as we're going to see here in this passage, there's a standard and there's, there's things that don't match up. And I want you to understand what we're going for here in a sense. And so that's what we're looking at this morning, this idea of love, light, and wisdom. Because to combine love and truth takes wisdom. But you have to know what love looks like, and you have to know what light looks like before you can put them together. And so that's Paul's goal. It's also interesting that he doesn't start with truth or light first. But he starts with God's love first. Primarily, I think, because, again, his prayer in Ephesians chapter 3 is that we might know the love of Christ. He understands that for us to really live out the truths of what God is presenting to us, that we are one in Christ, that we're one from every tribe, tongue, and nation, this new body of Christ, this new man that's being built up into God's temple, the primary thing we need to understand and live out of is God's love, primarily. For instance, we had an amazing upheaval in American society this week when the Supreme Court announced, right, that Roe versus Wade is is now overturned, right? And now we're into, well, what does that mean? And how's that going to look? And how's that going to play out? And of course, those of us who who were saying, hey, abortion is evil are rejoicing. Those who were saying, hey, abortion is good, it's best, are upset. But, uh, but if you apply what Paul is saying here, the logic that Paul's approaching this from, he's saying love is most important first. And yet, we would say, as, as, as people who are trying to protect both the woman and the child who is about to be born, yes, we want to love both people well, Right? And that takes wisdom then, it takes truth to understand that they're both human beings created in the image of God. And then it takes wisdom to know how do we handle situations in, in ways that glorify God, in and, and ways that are, build up people and care for people. This is, this is what we do as Christians. We live out of God's love for us, and we live out of that primarily because God has loved us, right? Romans 5 says, for while we were still sinners, God showed his love to us by sending his son to die for us, right? And that's actually the standard that we want to get into in Ephesians chapter 5, because what he's going to say in Ephesians chapter 5, first of all, is that we need to imitate the uniqueness of God's love. He's saying, if you want to walk in love, you need to understand what it means. And he's actually pulling this all together in a sense by saying, imitate God. Which, if you think about it, is a very bold and audacious statement, right? To say, imitate the God of the universe. You can be like him. We're like, hey, God's like, he's holy, he's he's way beyond us, he's wise and powerful and just and good. There's no way I can imitate him, and yet we are called to do that out of the relationship we now have with him, right? He says, therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children Again, this taps us back into Ephesians chapter 1. Who, who are we in Christ? We have gone from being God's enemies, God's you know, like no connection with God at all, to, to being adopted into God's family, right? Imitate God as beloved children and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. So here he's saying that there's a a uniqueness or a a standard for what it means to imitate God as God's God's beloved children. And when we say we're going to walk in love as God walked in love, well, there's a standard for what that looks like. And that is, he lists it right off here, as Christ's loved us, and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In a sense, Paul is saying here, you want to understand what love is, let's get rid of all the other definitions, and we'll go to the top. We'll understand the key definition. Do you want to understand what love is? Look at what Jesus did for us. Jesus saw our destruction, our death, that we all die in this world in which we live. And he came to this earth as the son of God and said, I'm not just going to give you an example of how to live now. You know, just, just watch my example. Because sometimes we do that as parents, right? We're like, watch my example, Right? Until we do something we don't really want them to do, and then we say, well, do what I say, not what I do, right? You know, there's this this tension between examples. Why? Because no example is perfect in some ways, and because sometimes the example to follow seems impossible. Like, okay, like, what are you saying, follow my example? Like, I'm supposed to, you know, have my own job and keep my own, keep my own books and my own car, and I'm only five. Like, what do you mean, (laughs) right? Like, what does it mean to imitate God as beloved children of God, and, and he's saying here, well, look at the example of God's love for us. He gave his son who came and gave himself up. Christ gave himself up for us. He chose to go to the cross. And you see this in the gospel, right? He had many opportunities where he could have kind of just tweaked the process a little bit and it would have shaved him away from having to go to the cross, he did it multiple times even before he came to the cross, right? Like there was a crowd that was riding that was going to stone him and, and kill him. And he's like, oh, I'm just going to slide out of this. Uh, we don't know exactly how he did, but he did. There were other times when he just, he didn't force the confrontation. He didn't force the response. But in that final week, what did he do? He went to the temple, and he'd done it before, but he threw over the changing tables like drove out the money changers like like you're not going to make my father's house a dead of thieves and before that he then left but this time around he hangs around and he keeps going into the temple and like saying this is what it means to follow god this is who god is and eventually like well we'll kill him after the passover festival you know and then judas shows up according to god's plan is like i can turn him over to you now and they're like, we'll take it. You know. <laughs> he forced the issue. Why? Because he gave his life. We even see that on the cross, right? He's l- hanging on the cross, and as the song goes, he could have called 10,000 angels to call him down, but what did he do? Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. And he dies. He gave up his life. It was his to give up, but he gave it up out of love for us. It says there again in verse 2 as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. It wasn't it wasn't just that he was giving us an example out of his death of what sacrificial love was was like, although that's partially it. But that he was actually taking our punishment upon himself. He was he was paying a debt that we could not pay. We could not pay for our own sin and live. We cannot pay for all the the mistakes that we've made and the evil that we have done and live. And so Christ was the sacrificial lamb, the substitutionary atonement for our sins. And so therefore, this this love is something that, notice also that he says here that it's a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. So there's two key things things to me that are unique about this gift of Christ's love. There's more, I'm sure, but I just want to emphasize two. The first one is that it sacrifices and actually does something, right? You ever had someone say, I love you, and I'll, and I'll you know, I'll, I'll do the dishes for you, or I'll do this for you, or do that for you, but then they don't actually do it, you know? Like, they don't actually accomplish what they said they were going to accomplish, And you're like, uh I thought you were going to do that. And they're like, I thought you loved me and you were going to do that. And like, oh, well yeah, well I forgot or I uh, something else came up or well I'll get to it eventually, you know. And and they don't actually do what they say. But this love does what it says. Does what it promises. Not only that, but it's love that knows what is ultimate and seeks to please him. Notice here again, it's a love that doesn't, it doesn't turn it around and be like, okay, I did something amazing for you. You better do something amazing for me. <laughs> he says it's a fragrant offering and a sacrifice to God. This is Jesus going to the cross, not ultimately like, you owe me one. <laughs> but of, me, of him saying, Father, you're such an amazing God, I want to rescue these people so that they know you. He's saying, I love you so much, and you're worth knowing so much, that I want all of these people to know you like I know you. And that's why we have passages like Romans chapter 8. And, and just, just think through this passage briefly with me, right? Romans Chapter 8, verse 31 says, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? He's saying, look, if God loves us enough to give us his son, don't you think he's going to take care of us in other ways too? Like, that's the ultimate. So if he takes care of us in the ultimate way, then some of the other ways that we worry about, can he not handle you know, it's one thing we wish is that we wouldn't be charged, that we would have someone say that we're not guilty, and it says, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. God's love for us justified us. It made us righteous. All the times when we, we look at ourselves, I'm like, I'm, I'm a failure. I'm, a, I'm an idiot. I'm stupid. What, what was I thinking that was so wrong, that was so hurtful? You have a God who justifies you. Who takes care of not only the ways you think that way but the way God thinks of you in that way who is to condemn Christ is the one who died more than that who was raised who is at the right hand of God who indeed is interceding for us God's love for you isn't just a point in time past thing Paul here in Ephesians chapter five is saying it's a lifestyle. Paul here in Romans is saying, "Hey, Christ is actively involved in what's going on in your life right now. The things that you're dealing with right now, He's interceding for you. He's He's at God's right hand, talking to God on your behalf. That's love, right?" It's the same kind of love that does the dishes and the laundry and fixes the meals and just does the things of life. Christ loves us like that as well. Paul goes on, who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. He's saying, hey, we do look at our lives and we say, but I've got all these problems. I've got all these difficulties. I've got things that, that you're like, God, why are you letting this in my life? This seems bad. There seems to be like no reason, no good that could come out of this. And yet Paul is saying here, even with those things that we look at in our lives, those things do not separate us from the love of Christ. God's love, Christ's love, for, God's love for us in Christ is that kind of love that even takes the difficult things of life and can turn them to good. And that's why he says in verse 37, No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. This is the gift of love that we have. If you're a Christian, you're continually trying to to marvel at this gift, to understand it, to to wrap your mind around it, and yet you still can't. Why? Because it's, it's such a great and awesome gift. And I could just stop here for a minute and just maybe a point of application, so to speak. In your reading of Scripture, as you read Scripture, whether it's daily or however you do it, encourage it to be daily, does that help you adore God more? Are you falling more and more in love with God after reading Scripture? Or are you more burdened by things to do? Like, oh, but I've got to find the things God wants me to do, because if I don't do those things, then God won't love me. That's, that's really not the point of the gospel. God loves you. And therefore, you get to know him. <laughs> Paul here is also saying that your walk often talks louder than your talk talks. He's saying you've got a lifestyle to live. And you can, he's, he's encouraged you to speak the truth in love. And he's been talking about speaking all the way up to this point. And now he's saying, hey, but look at your lifestyle as well. Your spe- it can't just, just be your speech. It's got to be your lifestyle." And is that coming from the love of God for you? He's, walk in love. It doesn't mean, he's not first of all saying you, you have to love, be loving in everything you do. That's where he's going to get. But what he's really saying is walk in God's love. Walk in the love of God for you. And then you're able to let that overflow into the love for others. And ultimately what he's saying here is, is this is the standard for love. When we talk about love, and our culture likes to talk about love a lot, let's define it. And Paul is saying here, the definition for love is, Christ loved us and gave himself up for us. A sweet-smelling aroma, a sacrifice to God. That's the standard. That's the ultimate And therefore, he says, we need to avoid the substitutes for God's love. We need to avoid the substitutes for God's love. Because there are many things in our culture, in our world that say, this is love. (laughs) This is good. This is great. Love love is the ultimate. Love transforms. Love makes life worth living. (laughs) And those statements are true, but you still have to define it properly. And what they do is they use the word, but then they bring in an alternative definition, if you will. Because he says, But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking which are out of place, but instead let there be thanksgiving. He's saying we should avoid and even purge the substitutes for God's love out of our lives my my wife um, went to camp this week I was alone you you can decide who who had the worst job her counseling eight girls or me holding down the fort with five children Um, which one was worse I think she had the worst job. Okay, I, my kids are pretty great. I'm, I'm, I'm not gonna lie. Um, and so, uh, so she was telling this. So she's counseling, and, and it's Friday night. You know, they're they're getting their last snacks, and of course, there's then this huge line to go through the concession stand, right? And they're all lined up, and and uh, she's waiting in line with some girls, and uh, the line is not moving. And it's not moving for, no, like five minutes. No, it's like 15 minutes. The line hasn't moved at all. And so it starts to move. And so she turns to the girls around her and is like, we're going to do something about this. You know, she, of course, my wife, she's like tempted, like, should I go back there and help? Let's move this line along. I mean, that's the way she thinks. But, but, uh, but she's like, oh, no, the one thing I can do is, uh, is I, can, I can at least get these girls to order faster. So she turns to the girls around her. They weren't even necessarily her girls, the girls that are in her cabin. And she's like, okay, what do you guys want? Because when we get up there, we're going to order quick. And one of the girls is standing there. She's like, well, what I was thinking was, I've got $3. And I would get up there, and I would ask the concession guy, like, I've got $3. Like, what do you think the best thing that I could get with $3? You know, because, hey, he's the experts, you know, and Amy's like, oh, this is the problem, you know what I mean? like, what are you gonna do, you're gonna go up there, like, hey, I got three bucks, uh, how's this gonna work, he's like, well, you could get a screamer, and then you could get some airheads, and maybe this, you know, something else, I don't know what all's up there, and, uh, and, and then she'd be like, well, what's a screamer, you know? Well, you go, well, no, I don't want a screamer. What else could I, you know? And it'd just be this negotiation, right, between everything that you can get out of $3 at the concession stand, you know? And I was thinking about that in terms of my sermon, you know what I mean? Because in some ways, that's what our culture does, right? It's like, wait, we, we go to the restaurant and we're like, hey, you know, you're the expert. You've been here longer, uh. What's good to get at this restaurant? Because I want the best experience I can get at this restaurant, right? I mean, that's what we do. And in some ways, that's what we do with love. We, we like, go to our culture and we say, hey, uh, what's the best experience here? you like, you know what love is, right? I- I'm still trying to figure it out. And so if you could tell me what love is, then I'll try it. <laughs> and that is destructive. That kills. It's not $3 at a concession stand. It's your soul. And he here lists sexual immorality, just, just all the things in life that kind of just break the rules. And again, it's, it's not so much about the rules. I, I, I want you to understand that there are truths that matters here. But again, the standard for love is... Christ's love for us that he gave himself up for us to God and we're saying no just the best experience you can get that's love it's not love you know you break the rules and you can have a better experience and you can get what you want out of life that's love no that's death but people call it love he says the word impurity is the word translated here. These, these two are kind of go together. They're two different sides. One's more about the rules. The impurity is more about treating people as objects. It's that idea of, obviously, purity is that sense of, of, of I'm fixed, I know what's good, I'm, I'm pursuing the good. Impurity is the idea of, well, I'm, I'm, trying to, I'm trying to negotiate my way and get what I want out of the situation. It's, it's treating people as objects or lowering their true value to something like junk. It's saying, in some ways, love doesn't matter. It's, I matter more than love. More than doing what's good for the other person. And that's, the, again, the opposite of God's love for us. Christ was willing, even though he was God's son, to give himself up for us to say they matter, even though he was God. And so he's saying, get rid of these substitutes. People say this is what love is. That's not love selfishness, and he uses the word covetousness here, which is an interesting word, it just means desire, but then you, you know he's, what he's talking about here, even in Fuller, because later on in the passage, he says, um, verse 5, sorry, for you may be sure that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, and then he adds this phrase, that is an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. So covetousness, in some ways, is not just that desire for something. It's also replacing God as the ultimate with that desire. It's saying, you know, God is an ultimate, love is. Or God is an ultimate, you know, this car is. Or whatever else we want to put in the place of God Therefore, he's saying again, he's kind of come back to this of of that that basic of desire that he's been going through all the way through here in Ephesians chapter 4. He's saying, hey, if if our desires are out of control, if we're just living for desires, again, that's, and saying this is love. Love is, is me getting what I want out of life. It's not love. A twist on this that I think may help you with this is that love, sometimes people say love is having what everyone else has. Like, well, if this, they have this, then I should have it too. If you loved me, you'd give me, you know. Children do that to their parents all the time, right? Like, well, my, this sibling got this, so I should get it too, right? When It might mean, not mean, be what's best for you in the situation. Love is that sacrificial doing what's best for the other person. But if we redefine love as love is me getting what everyone else has, then it's really all about what I want. Homosexuality, transgenderism, other forms of sexual immorality, in some ways are people saying, well, if you have this, then why can't I have it too? And why can't I get it my way and not your way? It adds that impurity aspect of, it doesn't matter so much, people are just objects to get what I want. And Paul here is saying, these things shouldn't be named amongst Christians. They shouldn't, in some ways you say, there shouldn't even be a hint of this. Why? Because we know what true love is. We should not be fooled by the substitutes. We understand God's love for us, that he gave himself up for us. And he goes on and says that we shouldn't even joke about these things. Why? Because we have received Grace. He's not saying, hey, we shouldn't joke with each other. What he's saying is, we shouldn't joke about what love looks like. Because this is deadly serious in a sense. Love is the example of what Christ did for us. And if we can't focus on thankfulness and not crudity, or sardonic disgust for beauty... And we have missed the mark. We should be thankful for the grace and love that we've received. This should be our dominant thing. If we understand what God's love did for us, we should, we should be operating out of that. We should be thankful and grateful for the gracious love that we have received. And so Paul here is ultimately saying, Look, this is what love is, this is what love isn't. And he adds, then stops by saying, Don't be fooled. Which is fascinating to me, but he lives in a culture where there's somewhat similar to our culture where there's a lot of different voices saying a lot of different things about what's ultimate, what's God and what's not God and what, what's best for people's lives and how people should operate. And there's many schools of thought in Greek culture about, you know, you need to be an ascetic, you need to deny yourself, and no, you just need to be a hedonist, just enjoy all the pleasure you have. And you know, how, did, how does Christianity weave its way through there? And he's saying, we start with understanding the gospel of what what it means for God to love us, and we should not be deceived. Again, notice what he says at the end there. Let no one deceive you with empty words, vain words. There's a lot of people talking about there, out there, about what's love, what's not love, about what's loving, what's not loving. Don't be deceived. We know the love of God, and we know what true love, sacrificial love, looks like. Let's keep our eyes there. I was, so I was on vacation the week Jeff spoke, and I heard he did a lot of dad jokes, and so I'm sure he did much better on dad jokes than I would ever do. My son does really good at dad jokes, too, but in the boundary waters, we weren't joking around too awful much, it, but it was fun, and we had a good time, but you, you have to understand, I, I've been in the Boundary Waters several times, and one of those times, we dumped, and it was pretty, pretty terrifying, uh, dumped in the middle of a lake, it was, uh, the first part of October, it was really cold, went really, obviously didn't go too bad, because I'm still alive, but, uh, but it was bad, right, and so, uh, so now going back to the Boundary Waters, there's always this, kind of this, like, alertness in my head, like, Oh, what's the wind doing? And so, uh, one day the wind was stronger. It was it was it was somewhat dangerous. In fact, we were, we were my wife and I were negotiating. We're we're a good team. We were paddling together, working together, on a, in the Kevlar canoe, and and uh, and we were coming along. And but at one point the wind just there's just these gusts that came up, and it literally turned us sideways in the lake and almost dumped us just from one blast of air, and so at that point, now I start to become a little hyper, you know, like, okay, this could go bad, not too bad, it's June and the boundary waters, but hey, I don't want to dump, and so we get, to, we get through a portage, and we get up to this next part of the lake, and the wind is just funneling into us, and all of a sudden, you're aware of, wow, okay, we got to be really careful here, and and what, you're, you're, you're applying, what have I learned from the past? How's this going to work? And so all of a sudden, you're watching the lake very carefully. Does that make sense? Because if you're canoeing, what you, you can see it coming. There's these ripples on the water. And there's waves happening. But what you're, not, you're not watching the waves. You're watching the ripples. Because the wind pushes it and ripples it. And the harder the wind, the smaller the ripple. I mean, you physicists understand this, okay? Right? Wave patterns. But but so you're watching for those really tiny ripples that are coming at you. So I have to admit once I was watching forward, but the wind was kind of coming from the west and we were going southwest. So the wind would shift into the lake and then tunnel down, but occasionally it would just come from the west. So we're paddling, we're going up southwest and I had a hat on and all of a sudden Boom! This gust comes straight from the west, just rips my hat off and throws it in the lake. And you know what? I didn't even look for it. I was like, "It's gone," because I'm just going up river. I'm going up river. I'm not worried about that hat. Why? Because I know it's important here. And we live in a culture where we feel like we have to read the wind very carefully. Right? There's a lot of danger, a lot of issues that are coming at us in various directions. And we need to remember, just like Peter needed to be reminded, that God is the God of the wind and the waves, right? Isn't he? Like, he's really in control. And as we were paddling along, that's what I was, con- God was kind of saying, no, 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 remember. I, you see the wind, but who controls the wind? you see the waves but who controls the waves like like let's keep our perspective properly don't get deceived into what you need to look at and so there was one time we got there's about 3 miles we got 2 miles up and uh we got caught in another blast it was just one of those situations where we were kind of switching switching paddling and uh in the, as we both switched, the wind caught the the, the the edge of the canoe and just whipped us 180, basically. So we were going this way, and all of a sudden we're going this way. Kevlar canoes, they're lighter, so they could just do that. We, we were a little jealous of Tad and Zeke because they have this big aluminum canoe, right? And they're just paddling along. They're like, what's wrong with you guys? We're like, you've got an aluminum canoe. It's like 70 pounds. It's like a tank in the water. Like there's nothing pushes it around. But, but we were like whipped around. And so it, it and when you're caught like that, you just, you just have to ride it. So I was like, Amy, just we're just going to ride the w- wind and steer for the side, and then we'll be okay. And so we, just, we were just being pushed by the wind, and then we, we got out of it and turned around and kept going. But, but sometimes the wind is like that, right? It's, it, it, we feel like, well, we're going to push this way and push that way. And what we have to remember is God's grace is, is there. We have what we need. And even though it feels like we're going to push this way and push that way, and that we don't know what the future may hold, yet we know the God who loves us. We know the God who gives us grace. He's saying, don't be deceived. Don't buy into all the lies like, oh, there must be a better life for me because, well, maybe you only live once, and maybe I should just get what I can out of life, and maybe I need to go shopping for the best experience in this life because, man, I don't feel really good right now. Paul here adds a reminder. He says this, right? He says, don't, be, don't let anyone deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. And some people might say, well, okay, we're back to the wrath of God, right? You're like, well, this is, why do we have to add wrath to love here? But anyone who knows what it means to love means that you get angry when those who you love, are hurt. And let let me ask you, what deserves judgment more than lying about what love truly is? What deserves judgment more than lying about what love truly is? Because that's what this culture, with all its voices, is saying, is that there's a better version of love. There's a better version of you know fill in the blank and if you, if you just come to me i've got the i've got this i've got this experience and i can cater my experience to you and i can help you have a great experience too it's lies it's lying about what love truly is and what deserves judgment more than that why why would god not get angry with that because he gave his son out of love for us to show us what love truly is. Now, someone might say, well, I haven't experienced true love. If you haven't, you can. Not through a human being, but through looking at Jesus. By going back to the Gospels and seeing Jesus dying on the cross for you. He did it for you. Out of love for you. So that you can know the love of God forever. Not just for a few years. And that is Paul's encouragement and exhortation to us this morning, that we would walk in God's love and imitate him as you have opportunity. Why? Because we know the love of God. We have experienced it in Jesus Christ. I ran across this discussion of this quote from J.C. Ryle in Thoughts for Young Men. He's talking about the fact that God is no respecter of persons, and that God is not measuring us in relation to the things that we're tempted to use to measure ourselves. And right, we're tempted to measure ourselves, right, in our culture, maybe by intellect or finances or status. We're tempted to say, Well, I'm better than you, or I have better experience than you, or I have a more purposeful life than you. And Ryle says to the young man who are his readers, You see, God is only measuring in relation to our souls. He says, don't forget this. Keep this in view. Morning, noon, and night, the interest of your soul. Rise up each day desiring that it may prosper. That is, your soul may prosper. He says, remember Zeuxis, the great painter of old. I had to look him up in Wikipedia. That old of a painter that was great. (laughs) Um, Yeah, you'd have to look him up too, I'm pretty sure. When when men asked him why he labored so intensely and he took such extreme pains with every picture, his simple answer was, I paint for eternity. J.C. Ryle says this, Do not be ashamed to be like him. Set your immortal soul before your mind's eye. And when people ask you why you live as you do, answer them, in his spirit, I live for my soul. Believe me, the day is fast coming when the soul will be the one thing men will think of and the only question of importance will be this. Is my soul lost or is my soul saved? Do I know the love of God in Christ? And so my question to you, first of all, is do you, do you know the love of God in Christ? Have you heard the good news of what Jesus did on the cross? I talked about it already this morning, right? Christ came as God's son died in our place on the cross. And three days later, he rose again, demonstrating that God accepted his sacrifice on the cross and that we have eternal life in him. This is the love of God. And we sang about it this morning. We sang four songs about it. And the one that hit me the most was Worldly Pleasures All Forsaken. Why? I surrender all because I see the love of God for me. And it's greater than any other love for me. It, it reaches down into the depths of my soul, into those hidden parts that are afraid and ashamed, and, and, and are saying, but no one should love me, no one should want me, and says, I want you, I love you, you're mine. This is God's love for us. And if you know God's love for you, Will you walk in God's love? Will you not accept the substitutes that the world is offering, but instead say, I know the love of God and I'm going to live as if I do. May we all do that because of his great love for us. Heavenly Father, we're thankful that you remind us that we are not just beings that live 70 or 80 years or maybe 100 and then pass on, no longer to exist. But we live forever because your your love for us is forever. And you bring us to yourself in Christ out of his love for us. He gave himself for us on the cross. What great love is this? Lord, help us not to accept substitutes for your love. Let's not help us not to practice substitutes for your love. But seek to live honoring your love in everything we do in your Son's name.